I am so grateful to uh, Brian and the leadership here of the church uh, giving me this opportunity. It's a great joy and privilege for me to be with you. I uh, do bring you greetings from a sister church, really, Twin City Bible Church. Uh, reminds me, uh, you remind me much of, of them, and, and so uh, it's good to be here. I feel at home. It, it's really amazing to me as you travel around, you, you get to a place where you really don't know anybody, and yet it doesn't take you long to realize you're, you're closer to them than you are some of your own blood relatives who don't know Christ, because we, we have the same love for the Savior and the same love for the Scriptures, and so I certainly have sensed that in my short time here this weekend, I actually grew up in the uh, in Texas, uh, the Republic of Texas. It's not actually part of the United States; it's its own country. Uh, when you grow up in Texas, you actually call the state line; you call it the border. It's the border between Texas and Louisiana, and so forth. And so, I did move from Texas back into the United States when I moved to California. And uh, there, I learned English. I speak Texan and English, and. I've tried to perfect uh, my second language, English, through the years. But again, thank you for letting me be here this morning. It's very interesting uh, to me how there are these biblical statements or biblical events that have come to be used as metaphors uh, for life in our own in our world today. Uh, even by unbelievers, at times they will use these biblical expressions and. They understand the general point of the concept. You'll hear an expression like this. It feels like I'm, I'm Daniel in the lion's den, you know, when they're in some business meeting or some confrontational meeting or something. Or they might say, uh, as we heard Stuart teach on in Sunday school, they, they might use the expression, a thorn in the flesh. That, that person is really my thorn in the flesh. Even unbelievers might say something like that. There's one expression that is related to a very significant event in Israel's history when Israel escaped from the, the nation of Egypt. As we know, they were in bondage there for many years. They left Egypt, but then the Egyptians came pursuing them from behind, and the Israelites found themselves standing at the Red Sea. And so that's an expression that people will use. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of standing at the Red Sea, or I'm asking for God to part the Red Sea. I've heard even unbelievers say something like that. They understand that that means they're in an impossible situation of some sort. Well, that was an actual event that took place in the nation of Israel. They actually stood before the Red Sea, and that did seem to them to be an impossible situation, but they're was another time that they probably felt the same thing, another time for the people living in Judah. It was a time that was an impossible situation for them and for their king, King Jehoshaphat. They were facing a situation that I'm sure reminded them of that event so many years before in their history, standing at the Red Sea. It was a situation that from a human perspective, seem to have no solution. We find this event in our text for this morning, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, that was in Sunday school, 2 Corinthians, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's the account of the time when Judah faced invasion by the hostile nations that lived around them. By this time in history, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, they were actually divided into two kingdoms, as you know. There was the the northern kingdom that took the name Israel, but then there was the southern kingdom that was called Judah. We find here the nation of Judah facing an impossible situation. Now, before we look at this event, I really want to take just a few moments to talk about their king, King Jehoshaphat. First of all, Jehoshaphat was the son of another king, King Asa. King Asa was one of those kings that was relatively a good king. We have to say that about some of those kings. He was good relative to some others, but even the good kings had some glaring blind spots in their lives and in their 
rule, blind spots in their thinking and their behavior. Asa was like that. But again, overall, Asa was a decent king. You find the record of Asa's reign earlier in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapters 14 through 16 would be the account of his reign. Let me just read one verse, Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2. Here's a general statement about King Asa. It says in Second Chronicles 14, 2, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Interestingly, chapter 15 tells us that some of the people who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, they decided to deflect, to uh, defect down to the southern kingdom of Judah because they, they did see some measure of God's blessing on that southern kingdom. Unfortunately, in chapter 16, we find that though relatively a good king, Asa's life and reign did not end so well. That's in chapter 16. You come to chapter 17 and you find now Jehoshaphat. His son succeeded him. And again, we can say that about Jehoshaphat. He was relatively a good king. Look at chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he, verse 4, sought the God of his father. He followed his commandments and did not act as Israel did. Verse 5, So the Lord established the kingdom in his control. In chapter 18, however, we unfortunately find Jehoshaphat aligning himself with the king of the northern kingdom, the king of Israel, King Ahab. Ahab was someone who really did not love the Lord and obey the Lord. And yet Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat aligned himself with Ahab. That led to something that happened. It led to Ahab requesting that Jehoshaphat join him and help him go up against Ramoth Gilead. Now, to Jehoshaphat's credit, when Ahab made this request of him, he was a little hesitant. He he wanted them to to seek the Lord's will in this. I mean, should we do this or not? And and, and we need to we need to speak to a prophet. Ahab reluctantly agreed to that, and he mentioned a prophet that he didn't actually like. It was a prophet named uh, Micaiah. This is in chapter 18, verse 7. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. But if you got to talk to somebody, all right, let's go talk to him. Well, Jehoshaphat insisted that they do that, and Micaiah eventually tells him the truth and says, you ask me, I'll tell you, this is a bad idea. This whole venture is going to fail. But Ahab insisted on it anyway. He insisted on this campaign, and he actually deceived Jehoshaphat into going into battle with him. Now, a point came when Jehoshaphat realized that this was a bad thing that they were doing, and he cried out to God for help and God did graciously give that help. Something interesting happened to Ahab, though, right? An enemy soldier randomly shot an arrow up in the air, and it came down into a joint in Ahab's armor, and that led to his death. In chapter 19, then, as we make our way toward today's passage, in chapter 19, a man named Jehu confronted Jehoshaphat for what he had done, confronted him, for aligning himself with Ahab like that. And though this event, this debacle in Jehoshaphat's reign was very unfortunate, he did learn from it. He responded properly. And you see this in chapter 19, verse 4. So Jehoshaphat went out again among the people, it says, and verse 4 goes on to say, and he brought them back to the Lord. He's a relatively good king. He realized he He made a big mistake, and he repented of that, and that sets the stage for our focus today in chapter 20. Now, I'm going to just walk through this story with you, this narrative section of Scripture, and we're going to uh, divide it into, into scenes. There are these six scenes that are like scenes of a play being acted out on a stage, 
Let's look at them together as we go through this passage. Here's scene number one, and this is something that happened about six or seven years before Jehoshaphat's death. Scene number one, we'll just call it the unexpected threat. Verse one. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. This was very unexpected, this invasion of these combined forces of of three groups. The Moabites and and Ammonites were up north, and the Meunites were an Arabic tribe that were headquartered in Edom, which is on the southwest side of Judah. So these three come together, this coalition of armies, and they plan to invade the southern kingdom Judah with the purpose of driving the people of God out of there and taking it over. Now, it was some of Jehoshaphat's people who brought him the shocking news. Verse 2, Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming up against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. Again, this was totally unexpected. And notice it says this coalition of armies, this invading force was a great multitude. That's a way of just saying it was a vast army that was much bigger than Judah's army. And this advancing army took a little, uh, utilized a little used route around the southern end of the Dead Sea. They circled around there because Judah was less defended there. Now, why were they doing all this? Well, they likely had heard about how well Judah was doing. And they had likely heard about the temple in Jerusalem and the riches that were in that temple, the gold and so forth, and they knew the people had been flourishing there for years, so they were now coming in great hordes to kill and to destroy and to plunder. Scene number one. Here's scene number two. The singular hope. Verse three. Jehoshaphat was afraid. We get that. He understood they were clearly outnumbered, but he also knew where to go for help. In fact, it was the only place to turn to. Verse 3, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. That term seek is a word that actually denotes that you, you seriously fix your, your heart on something. And the point is that ultimately Jehoshaphat was putting his trust in the Lord in this situation. There was nothing else he could do. And he called upon the people to fast. That was just a way for them to humble themselves before the Lord and to make it clear that they were sincerely pleading to the Lord for help. And that's what all the people did. They pled to God for help. Verse 4, So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. You see, the whole nation... Had heard. I mean, the emails and the texts were going out like crazy. So they all knew that the enemy was enormous. And that the case was hopeless as far as they were concerned. They were standing at the Red Sea once again, it seemed. So they prayed with their king Jehoshaphat leading them as they gathered in the temple. This prayer has five sections to it. Let's look at them real quickly. First... In verse 6, they acknowledge God's sovereign power. That's the first thing they did. Verse 6, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. They're confessing that God is the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one. That God is the one that rules over all things. And he exercises that power, it says, in, in, in might, that rule in power and might. So this is an expression, essentially, that is a statement of their confidence in God's ability to help. They know nothing's too big for him. They use the name Yahweh here. Yahweh, they're calling upon Yahweh, who's the God of their fathers, it says. In other words, Jehoshaphat is giving a reason why God should protect his people in this present distress. Because God 
had proven His power. He had proven His might in generations past in their history. And He was the same God, the same Yahweh in Jehoshaphat's day. He's the same God in our day. That leads into the second section of the prayer here. They acknowledge their past blessings, which is really interesting. Now, in their case, that meant the blessing of the land that was given to the nation, the blessing of the temple that God had promised to Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon. Verse 7, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name. Since Yahweh had given the land of Canaan to his people Israel for an everlasting possession, and since he and since Israel had built a sanctuary to his name, it just seemed right. It only seemed right that God would take care of the nation so that they could continue to enjoy those blessings. In other words, Jehoshaphat is expressing his trust in God that God would not abandon his people after all that time. Third, in verse 9, they acknowledge what God had already promised. That's another, another part of their prayer here, acknowledging what God had promised to them. In this case, they're actually reciting a, really a summary of the promises that are associated with the Davidic covenant. We even find that mentioned back in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and chapter 7. This covenant, the Davidic covenant, include God's promise that he made to them to actually hear their prayers offered up in the temple. The end of verse 8 and verse 9, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. This plea, should evil come upon us, that's basically what Solomon prayed back in chapter 6 at the dedication of the temple. And in chapter 7, God promises to hear that kind of prayer. So they're rehearsing all that. Jehoshaphat is essentially pleading with God by saying, God, here's what you've promised to us already. I'm asking God that you would do what you've promised that you would do. And fourth, they acknowledge their terrible circumstances. That's part of their prayer. Verse 10 and 11. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us now by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance? He's saying these invaders are wrong to do what they're doing. God showed them grace Those nations were showed grace earlier by protecting them when Israel was taking over all the promised land. God showed these nations grace. And yet, in spite of God showing grace to them, here they are turning the tables and invading the Israelites. That could only mean one thing to Jehoshaphat. If God showed them grace back then, God will show his own people even more grace. The fifth part of this prayer is they acknowledge their need for help then. I love verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Look at this part. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You ever been there? What a great expression of weakness. What a great expression of their total inability to change the circumstances that they're in. They knew that God was the only one who could accomplish anything in a situation like that. You know, at this point, when he says that, they didn't know how God was going to bring the help. Not at this point. They didn't know when, but they still looked to him. Anyway, verse 13 says, All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. I'm sure having the whole family there, all the children there, just increased 
the sense of the danger that they were in, it stirred up even more fervent prayer because God was their singular hope. There was nowhere else to go. Here's the third scene, the encouraging promise. Now, starting at verse 14, we find that the Lord sent an answer to Jehoshaphat from an unexpected source. It's through a Levite named Jehaziel. Jehaziel was a descendant of the famous Levitical musician Asaph. Verse 14 says, Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. Verse 15, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. This was a welcome reminder at this point of the Lord's care for his people. And it's also a reminder of his sovereign ability to perform his will, whatever his will is. And it's a reminder of what is true in every circumstance. The answer is entrusting the Lord's will. It's trusting that the Lord is working out his will in the providential dealings in this world. The specific way God's going to work, that's not something we can know. And that was true for these Israelites. Notice, they're not told what God would specifically do. They're only told that God was doing something. And what God would do would become evident the very next day. Verse 16. Tomorrow, he says, go down against them, and you'll find them, the vast army of the enemy, you'll find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. Just so you'll know, this wilderness was a high, flat table land on the west side of the Dead Sea. It was essentially a a wasteland. So Israel went there to this high table wasteland on the west side of the Dead Sea to meet the enemy, but not to fight. Verse 17. This is what they're told. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, For the Lord is with you. Notice the repetition of those important instructions. Do not be afraid. It's back in in verse 15. It's here in verse 17. Pause just for a moment. Let me emphasize how important that point is. What does God do to help them first? He first helps them by calming their fears so that they were able, without fear, now to face whatever is going to come. Now, how often God does that for us. How often he gives his people deliverance, but it's the deliverance that's defined by quieting their hearts. So again, let me ask. Have you ever been in a situation where it is obvious there is nothing more you can do? Could be financial, could be something related to your family, children, something related to your health. Have you ever been in a situation where there's nothing more than you that you can do? It is in those very situations that scripture says we do not need to fear. We can actually have calm hearts as we go forward, just like these people did. That brings us to the fourth scene in this great narrative. Number four, the proper response. What did they do? They worshipped. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Verse 19, they stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Verse 20, they rose early in the morning. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord 
your God, and you will be established. You know, they were fighting a battle, but not a military one. They were fighting a spiritual battle against fear. And this is where the spiritual battle is fought, in whether or not we genuinely trust God in that difficult time. So again, notice the significance here. This response of worshiping the Lord was before actually seeing what God was going to do. So keep that in mind. It's easy to praise the Lord when He's done something marvelous for us. They worshiped before they knew what was going to happen. That's the proper response a very important scene in this narrative that brings us to scene number five, the shocking discovery. The shocking discovery. Verse 22, When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. If you've got a lot of money sitting around, this ought to be a movie. Okay, you need, you, you need to make this into a movie. And just picture this, what's happening now. The Israelites are marching out, supposedly to battle. That's what the enemies thought they were coming for. But they do it singing and praising on their way. Now, these enemies, they had fought battles before. I'm sure they were completely unable to understand a defense like this. They'd never seen this before. They're expecting a fight. So I'm sure they just couldn't figure this out. They're they're accustomed to armies coming into battle, making a different kind of noise, not marching along and singing hymns of praise to God. This is... Quite the new style of fighting here. And evidently, this greatly confused them. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how it happened specifically, but but there was confusion. We can pick that up. Confusion that led to some sort of mistrust between the groups. So let's just say group 1, 2, and 3. Evidently, group 1 and 2 are starting to look at group 3 and going, I don't know what's going on here, but they've conspired with the Israelites, there's something going on. We don't trust group three. Maybe they're the cause of this. So groups one and two fight group three and wipe them out. And when that's done, group one and two turn and look at one another and go, we don't trust you either. And they start fighting one another and they wipe each other out. I can tell you what the bottom line is. God stirred up some sort of confusion and caused all this to happen. So all God's people had to do was to just look at this, what was happening. Verse 24. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry, and there were... They were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. So here Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah find all the enemy dead, and they also find wealth in abundance. Why? Evidently, these three groups of people had gone forth with all their property, intending to drive the Israelites out and then stay in Judah. So they took everything with them. They were going to take possession of the land for themselves. And now God's people just start scooping it all up. And that brings us to the last scene. Number six, the appropriate conclusion. Verse 26, Then on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for they were blessed for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they have named this place the Valley of Barakah until today. Or Baraka, you could also say. The people of Judah 
gathered in a, in a valley. It was a valley near the battlefield, and it received this name. This name means the Valley of Blessing. And then after that, they went back home. They joyfully returned to Jerusalem, and they got there, and they went up to the temple to render further thanks to the Lord for this incredible thing the Lord had done. Verse 27, every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. Just so you'll know, many Bible scholars examine what's being said here and elsewhere in Scripture, and they believe that the song these people sang as they marched back was what we know as the 47th Psalm, Psalm 47. And it does make sense. Here's Psalm 47, starting verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. Verse 6, sing praise to God. Sing praises. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. Makes a lot of sense that that would have been their song. Well, we're definitely spread, and our section now ends, verses 29 and 30. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. An incredible narrative account with these marvelous six scenes. But I think it's only right to ask this question, what does this have to do with us today? I'm glad you asked. I want to give you the minimum reminders that we should get from this story. Reminder number one. It's the reminder of the priority of prayer. That's a very important reminder I take from this, the priority of prayer. In all of our difficulties, all of our trials, all of our dangers, all of our fears, our burdens, our anxieties, our needs, our perplexities, whether they're public ones or private ones, some of you are going through some of those perplexities and painful situations right now privately, and nobody even knows. Others are public Regardless, in all of our difficulties, our first response as God's people should be to seek help from him in prayer. We heard that read this morning. I'll read a portion of it again. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious. By the way, some people stop and they they read just that part. And they love this verse. Be anxious. That's a command. The Bible says it. And I'm really good at it, so I love this verse. It's my life verse. Be anxious. Well, there's more to the verse, okay? Another example where you can't take things out of context. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious for anything, your translation may say. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Look at those extreme words, nothing and everything. In all kinds of different words for prayer here. Prayer, supplication, request. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yet, sadly, for many of us, prayer is the last resort. Or it's no resort at all. So just think back to the story. Remember, Jehoshaphat and his people were helpless. And I asked you already, have you ever been in a situation like that? Let me ask it more in a present tense. Are you in one now where you don't know what to do and you sense that you're powerless to change anything? Then let's take this reminder seriously, then pray. In every situation, we should be known as those who are constantly seeking the Lord in prayer And let me tell you, point out something about what I just read in Philippians 4. Verse 6 said to pray. 
And verse 7 says the peace of God will guard your heart. Notice what's missing. It says nothing about the answer. The peace doesn't come in the answer. The peace comes from giving your burden to the Lord. Let's take that reminder, the priority of prayer. Second, there's eight of these reminders, by the way. I just want to give you hope so you'll know it has an end. Number eight, number two out of eight. It's this reminder, the reminder of the encouragement we find in remembering. The encouragement we find in remembering. When Jehoshaphat began seeking God, what did he start doing? He started mentioning God's past actions. And that is a powerful encouragement. Remembering what God has already done for us. In the past... We have found him so many times to be good. We have found him so many times to be faithful. We have found him to be true. We have found him to be patient. We have found him to be gracious. No matter what difficulty you've come through, how impossible some situations have been, guess what? Here you are. You're here today. So in a time of difficulty, it's right to come to him in prayer and say things like this, God, you are my God. It is you who, first of all, brought me out of the miry clay of my sin. You brought me out of the Egypt of my sin. So I know you're not going to leave me now. God, I know I'm, not, I'm unworthy of your help right now. But I know that I was always unworthy of your help. Every time you've helped me, I was unworthy. You have always had good reason to ignore me. You have always had good reason to abandon me, Lord, but you never have. So I come to you again. Lord, the only true source of the help I need. That's what Jehoshaphat did. He asked God's help by first recalling the past. So imitate him in that. A third reminder. The reminder of the freedom we have to be honest with God. The reminder of the freedom we have to be honest with God. The people of Judah clearly articulated their terrible situation and condition. We're not like that. I, mean, I know how it goes. We come to church or whatever. How you doing? Fine. And it's not so fine sometimes. I call it the miracle of the church parking lot. At least while we're here, you know. I mean, a couple may have just had a fight on the, this is hypothetical, may just had an argument on the way to church. And you put that foot on the church parking lot and something happens. Both of you. Hey, good to see you. Lord bless you, brother. Anyway, with God, we should be honest. There's great power in being truthful with God about our circumstances and our condition. Truthful about how we feel. Truthful about our fears and anxieties. We might as well. He knows our heart anyway. I like Psalm 3. I like all the Psalms, of course, but... And all those psalms where David is so honest in Psalm 3, he's, he's in a terrible spot. You know, his son Absalom has taken over the kingdom from him. And to make it worse, now his son has got the army and pursuing his own father to kill him. He's out there in the wilderness away from the comforts of, this, of the palace and away from the place of worship, the temple. He's only with a, a few devoted followers that are left, all except his most devoted follower, he had him murdered, husband of Bathsheba. And he starts off Psalm 3 basically saying, it's bad. <laughs> We're in a terrible situation. They're all surrounded, and they're trying to kill me, and I know how good they are because I trained them. They're really good soldiers. Spurgeon says this. I should always have a quote from Spurgeon in every sermon. So here, here's one. 
Spurgeon says this, when we have no strength, neither know what to do, we come and just lay the case down at God's feet and we say, there it is. Our eyes are upon thee. Perhaps you think that is not praying, Spurgeon says. I will tell you, it is the most powerful form of prayer. Just to set your case before God. Just to lay bare all your sorrow and all your needs and then say, Lord, there it is. So go. Go and lay bare your your sorrow before God. Just go and show your soul. Tell God what it is that burdens and distresses you. God's not moved by eloquence of words, but is swift to answer the true eloquence of real distress. God loves us to honestly state the difficulty we are in, like Jehoshaphat did. And I think it's because then we're more prone to have our antennas up of our heart to watch what he chooses to do. Because no matter how he does work in the situation, we'll be more readily able to remember our former condition, whatever it was, and thus more readily recognizing that he has somehow once again brought us through it. So I get that reminder here. The reminder of the freedom we have in being honest with God. Number four, the reminder of the benefit in reciting God's promises. The reminder of the benefit in reciting God's promises. It's not only allowed to do that, it's helpful. To say something like this, Lord, you have promised this or that. Jehoshaphat brought up the promises of God, you see. Lord, you've promised to do this, you've promised to do that in your word. I believe you will do as you said. And I emphasize that. You've promised in your word. We don't get new promises. He's given all we need in his word, the scriptures. So learn the promises of God's word. Repeat them to the Lord. The very things he has promised. And that strengthens you. It comforts you. Pray Romans 8, 28 and 29. Lord, you've promised in your word to use all situations, even a situation like this, to use it for good. I'm so thankful that you're that kind of God. Verse 29, Romans 8, you've said that you use all things to conform me to the image of your Son. Lord, you said in 1 Peter 5 that when we cast our cares upon you, that you, you, you strengthen us and you confirm us. I need that now. Do that. There's benefit in reciting God's promises. Reminder number five, it's the reminder of the true help that we do need. A reminder of the true help that we need. What we need most in times of difficulty, whether we know this or not, or whether we're willing to admit it or not this morning, what we really need most is to be delivered, say, from the fear of the trouble. Not necessarily the trouble itself. We need to have our hearts quieted. We need to have our hearts calmed. We need to be rid of the anxiety, rid of the fear, even if the circumstances don't change. As one writer said, the trial itself is nothing if the sting to our soul, so to speak, is removed. That makes the trial different. If your heart is not troubled, then the rest of the trouble is not as bad. We need that help from the Lord. And he did that for these people. Here's a reminder, number six, a reminder of our obligation to worship. A reminder of our obligation to worship regardless of the circumstances. In our prayer about our trial or our burden that we're giving to the Lord, we're also to remember to give the Lord the worship and the adoration that he deserves. It is this worship also that strengthens us. And just like we saw in this story in Second Chronicles 20, the timing of this worship is significant. They worshiped before they knew what was gonna, God was going to do. We should worship. Before the answer comes. Worship before the deliverance comes. 
Praise Him. Praise Him for what is coming. Adore Him for what He's going to do, regardless of what it is, because everything He does is good and right and just. And that kind of praise is so sweet to the Lord. This is really special because I have a second quote from Spurgeon. Two in one sermon. Spurgeon wrote, Though still the fig tree does not blossom, and still the cattle die in the stall, and still the sheep perish from the folds, though there should be to you no income to meet your want, and though you should be brought almost to necessity's door, still bless the Lord, whose mighty providence cannot fail and shall not fail. Your song, while you are still in distress, will be sweet music to the ear of God. And I see this so often. I talk to people as a pastor and they come to church and they've come through difficult times. What a hard week. People don't know what's going on and they hear the songs. They, they just can't even make themselves sing. Perhaps because of their own sin, they're thinking, I, I'm, I'm unworthy to sing. And I must be the only one because I look around and look how many people are singing and I, I just don't think I should. I think this passage and certainly many others would say, no, sing. Sing because of who God is, not because of who you are. Sing because everything he does is good and right and just. Sing because you are proclaiming that to your own soul. Choose to sing. Choose to trust. Choose to praise. Choose to worship regardless of your circumstances. Reminder number seven. It's a reminder from this passage of the sovereignty of God. We get that reminder almost from every passage, it seems like, but a reminder of the sovereignty of God, which, by the way, let me remind something that prayer is not. Let me just confirm what prayer is not. Prayer is not a divine 911 call. When you make a 911 call, you're telling somebody something that they don't know that's going on. Okay, that's not God. You're not informing him of something that he probably doesn't notice of just how difficult things are for you and how much you're suffering. Prayer is not a divine 911 call, and prayer is not twisting God's arm to do something. You're not backing God in a corner. You're not manipulating him in prayer to get him to change in some way. God is sovereign over how he chooses to answer our prayers. And keep this in mind, his answers include these. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not now. Sometimes the answer is different from what you're asking. Sometimes even better than what you're asking. The point is... God's sovereign over how he answers. And he answers according to his decretive will. He's not making things up as he goes. He's not figuring things out. He's not in heaven wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do with you and your circumstance. He's not shocked by it, surprised by it. He's sovereign over how he answers, plus he's sovereign over the timing. The timing is all in God's hand, and his timing is wise. His timing is good and just and perfect. Which means we must trust him. Trust him. What a reminder this story is of the sovereignty of God. But you know what that means to me? I think ultimately, instead of saying prayer is a way to change God, You know what prayer changes? It changes me. It helps me align myself with his desires and his will. Lastly, number eight. All of this together is a reminder of the need to know Christ. Why do I say that? Because if you have never come to trust Christ alone as your Savior, 
to repent from trusting self and loving self, to turn to trust Christ, who he is and what he's done, then I guess I should just cut to the chase and say none of this applies to you. None of it. Instead, you are left to fight your own battles. You are left having to bear your own trials. You are left just having to carry your own burdens. I can't think of anything worse than all that in this earthly life. And then when you come to the last great day before God's judgment throne, you'll have to answer for all your sin and you'll bear your own punishment for all that sin. So my prayer for all of us who know Christ is that we would take these reminders and and get great benefit from them. But my prayer for you is that God would be merciful to you and would deliver you from that condition that you're in. May God open your heart to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. May he open your heart that you might cry to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. My prayer is that he would save you. And then you can have the assurance of his love and trust, his love for you because of your trust in him and his sovereign working in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the word of God. It's all profitable and helpful. It challenges us. It teaches us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. It trains us. This great story of this great event in the history of your people, thank you for recording it in your word, this prayer of Jehoshaphat, that we might learn from it and be stronger because of it. I pray for anyone who does not know Christ that you would open their hearts to believe today. In his name we pray, amen.